Hi there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student. I have a plethora of medical students here with me today. Uh, let's start off with Garrett. Garrett, this is a podcast that you've developed and provided some of the information that we're going to review. Do you want to introduce us to the podcast and then we'll introduce uh, the rest of the students that are here with us today? Yeah, uh, I'm Garrett. I'm a fourth year medical student at Rocky Vista University. I'm planning on going into family practice, so I wanted to pick subjects that were important to me that I felt like I would benefit from knowing more of and would see in family practice. So today's topic being generalized anxiety disorder, which even according to the AAFP is commonly misdiagnosed or not diagnosed. Commonly so. We're going to talk about that just a little bit uh, as we jump into this topic, aren't we? Mm -hmm. Let's do some additional introductions. Uh, Jake, you're a million miles away. You might need to lean forward a little bit so that we can all get around the, the mic here. Yeah, I'm Jake McRae. I'm a fourth year student over at Rocky Vista University as well, and my direction is emergency medicine. And he's a little muffled because he's wearing a very good mask. <laughs> I'm Haley. I am a fourth year medical student that also goes to Rocky Vista University and my interest is OBGYN. And Haley, um, you may recognize her. She was a participant in the inaugural podcast that we did with uh, Phil Bennett, uh, who is now in a residency for pathology. pathology. And that yeah. was exact, almost exactly one year ago. Yeah, very, very close to a year ago. Mm -hmm. Kind of fun to have made it a year, almost, I think, 40 podcasts later now. Wow. That's yeah, a good start. Great work. Be Becca? I am Rebecca. I am a third-year medical student also from Rocky Vista University, and I'm not quite sure what I'm going into just yet. <laughs> it's a little early. You, you'll need to know in like three months. <laughs> I know, it's like suddenly it's on That's the truth. Uh, so my name is Chris, and I'm a third-year medical student interested in family medicine. And I'm Cody Rasmussen, also a third-year med student. Uh, from Rocky Vista, and I'm interested in surgery. All right, good to have you guys here. So let's let's start off with the high yield part of the podcast, and that is, we need to know what generalized anxiety is before we before we talk about uh, some of the things that that we need to know to treat that. And I think uh, Christopher, you're going to help us with that. Is that right? Um, yeah. So I'm going to cover the um, like DSM five. Um, criteria, also the criteria for um, step two or the shelf that we need to know. Um, so I have a mnemonic here of the different symptoms. There's um, six, um, six symptoms that the patient needs to have a few of them um, in order to qualify for this. Um, first though, the patient needs to have um, anxiety symptoms for um, six months or more in order to qualify for this. And they need to kind of like not be or like be out of control of their worry of their of these symptoms so they basically they they um don't have control over whether they have these symptoms or not and so the mnemonic so i'm, I'm going to jump in right here and, and we're going to come back to this this is the key defining feature and this will pop up again throughout the podcast excessive persistent worry that out of control worry that runs away from people is, is going to be how we uniquely identify, uh, identify this condition. Now, there are also some additional symptoms that go with this. And, and how many of those are there? I'm sorry. Um, so there's six of them. Uh -huh. And um, adults, in order to qualify for this diagnosis, need um, three or more. Children, though, only need one or more. 
or only need one. Um, and so the mnemonic is ICREST. And so the I stands for irritability. And then C is decreased concentration. The R is restlessness. E for energy. Um, and that can be like increased or decreased energy kind of, um, yeah. And like then restless energy? Is that yeah. people are busy moving around? Okay. Yeah. And then S is sleep difficulties and T is for muscle tension. So that's um, eye crest. I thought it was icy rest. Because it's a tough, you have a tough time falling asleep, right? When it's cold in bed, I can't fall asleep. Yeah, that know. might be easier to remember. Icy rest. <laughs> Icy rest. In any case, irritability, Sorry. concentration, restless, energy, sleep, muscle tension. Yeah. Right? And I think that muscle tension can cause headaches quite often. So you'll see the headaches show up with that. Is there a, is there a GI symptom that's in that as well? Not in... Not in the not criteria. in like the main criteria. Okay, so we now have a diagnosis. One thing you may have noticed, uh, and this is something that Garrett and I talked about a little bit, is there's not a lot of difference between, or, or I should say, there are some key differences between anxiety, generalized anxiety disorder, and major depressive disorder. But there's also a lot of overlap. Um, how, how do we, first of all? figure out the difference between major depressive disorder and generalized anxiety disorder when we're taking the shelf exam. And then I think we should also talk about some of the other um, psychiatric conditions that may also be difficult to choose between if you're looking at the shelf exam. So let's start with depression mm -hmm. and anxiety. And, and uh, Garrett, what did you find on that? What's the critical distinction between those? Well, I think first it might be beneficial to go over the parts that they share that overlap so that mm -hmm. when you're getting your vignette in your question you know you're like okay these are both hitting both things where and then you can go find that different spot so there's actually four out of those six criteria that are overlapped to depression being that restlessness sometimes the fatigue the disturbed sleep and the agitation or concentration i'm sorry i think i said agitation twice and i think energy Yes, uh, I, I love fatigue, fatigue. Sorry. Good. Yes, I'm, I'm not tracking it. You start thinking about it. When you're doing these things, you're thinking about a million things. I got to be right. honest. I'm just trying my hardest to not screw up most of the time. And, well, you know, I do. So I think one of the big differences is people with anxiety can still have, they often still have pleasure in things. Uh, they're still more active. They, but they, they, as you say, that worry. Whereas depression, it's kind of more of, things are bad. The, with the anxiety, it's the worry of things to be bad. It's a good distinction. So anhedonia versus excessive persistent worry. That's the critical mm -hmm. distinction between the two. What about other diagnosis? I think uh, some of the principles, sometimes anxiety disorders, they seem really, really different, but they do have some common uh, ground that they share. Jake, I think you had uh, looked up some similarities and differences between OCD and GAD. And if you were looking at a, a shelf exam question, actually, Rebecca, sorry about that. Rebecca, how would you tackle that uh, distinction? So it actually wasn't OCD, it was OCPD. OCPD, thank you. Um, and so the question I was looking at was actually going for um, OCPD, but um, generalized anxiety disorder was a common 
um, answer that people tended to pick. It was because the overlapping thing was recurrent, worrying, and insomnia. So if you just got that out of the vignette, it was very easy for you to pick generalized anxiety disorder. Um, but I think the major di distinction is, like you said earlier, it was persistent worrying um, for, for GAD, whereas OCPD, there was a focus on inflexibility, um, excessive perfectionism, and um, your main focus is with orderliness. And so um, I think that's what they're mostly concerned about, whereas GAD is more generalized. They're worried about everything all the time. So one is more inflexible, more rule bound, and one is persistent worry. But we kind of keep coming back to that, I think. Good. Jake, uh, panic disorder. You wrote, you were kind enough to put that on a note for me so I could get it right this time. <laughs> yes, another uh, common board style question reviewing the test banks that they like to pit against each other is panic disorder and then the GAD. Um, panic disorder though, is is very different um it's episodes of intense fear and discomfort that just last for several minutes it peaks within minutes um and the they, they typically have a fear of dying or some kind of symptom overdrive you know some uh with sweating palpitations nausea chest pain um shortness of breath kind of a choking sensation um, and these need to be for over a month and they need to be kind of a persistent worry or a maladaptive change in their behavior. So that differs from general anxiety where this is sudden, intense, peaks last for a minute. It's uh, the timeline, it's over a month. Um, and then it's not caused from a medication drug or a medical condition. And it's not better explained by another one of the anxiety disorders. Feeling of going to die is pretty common in those panic attacks as well. And I don't know that that happens as commonly in generalized anxiety disorder. And it's clearly not those discrete episodes of those not being able to breathe, that nervousness, right? Correct. All right, uh, let's see, third one, we have one more here. Garrett, you were going to tell us how to separate out generalized anxiety disorder from what? Agoraphobia. Agoraphobia. It's a, so for those that don't know, agoraphobia is this, it's, it's anxiety in itself, but it's towards being in a certain situation where you are, your fear not being able to get help. Like you're going to find yourself in this place suddenly locking up and you're just, you, you won't be able to go find somewhere to get help or get away. So that's often places like heavily populated malls, either out in the wide open or in closed spaces at work. And the criteria is they have to have at least two of those. Oftentimes it can get so bad for these people that they can find themselves to their home or somewhere else just to avoid being in those places, which can make it difficult with anxiety because it sounds like they're constantly worrying about this one place and staying at home. The key difference would be what they're worrying about. Whereas generalized anxiety disorders, that constant excessive worry of kind of everything. Whereas with this agoraphobia, it's to leave and be in that situation. Good. Um, I want to change gears just a little mm -hmm. bit. We've talked about some uh, psychiatric conditions that you might have to pick out or, or be able to distinguish between in your, in your study preparation, but there are also some medical conditions. And Cody, I think you've taken a look at those. Is that correct? Yes. So 
for my little topic, it actually kind of bridges the panic disorders that Jake had brought up and generalized anxiety disorder. So one of the specific questions that I ran into with some test prep was a patient that had irritability, restlessness, sleep disturbance. And the one thing that was interesting was um, the answer is basically exogenous hyperthyroidism. So it was something that wasn't quite acute, like a panic disorder, a panic attack, but it was something that was going on for a few months. So it might be mixed up for something that's going on for a longer time. So it's one of those, an interesting bridge almost between Jake, the two. Or, no, I'm sorry, not Jake. Uh, Cody, how, did, how would you have known to pick between uh, hyperthyroidism and generalized anxiety disorder or hyperthyroidism and panic disorder? What, was the, what are the kinds of clues that you'll be given? Uh, my recollection is that it's usually something about fullness in the neck or something along those lines. So with that case, it actually was no goiter or anything with the exogenous hyperthyroidism. So the person was actually oh. taking weight loss supplements or something else or a herbal supplement. So that had thyroid in it. Okay. So, but it was only over a couple months and it was more from the history is how you would have gotten that. Okay. Very good. Um, well, 3% of the population has generalized anxiety disorder. That's according to the National Comorbidity to Replication Study. We, we talk about that study all the time when we talk about prevalence. I think in the past I've mentioned that they use the SCID uh, to diagnose that. I was looking more closely today, and I've been wrong over and over and over in the past. It uh, seems like a trend today, but they use something called the WMH-CIDI, which is uh, uh, an, an interviewing schedule that apparently requires less technical proficiency and uh, it allowed them to interview about 10,000 people to get these kinds of numbers, which is a lot of people for uh, okay. some prevalence kinds of things. Uh, somewhere between uh, somewhere between 10 and 30% of the people that have generalized anxiety and go into a primary care physician's office get treatment for generalized anxiety disorder. So uh, it looks like uh, recognition is probably limited. We've talked about how do you recognize mm -hmm. general anxiety disorder. And now the next question is, if you're preparing to both start a practice and uh, for your shelf exam, what, what is the algorithm for treatment? What kinds of principles do you need to be able to know to answer the test questions uh, that prepare you? So I'm, I'm gonna start by throwing out a medication. Um, Benzodiazepines. What is the role for benzodiazepines in treatment of anxiety, Garrett? According to for our shelf exam, the answer is going to be to is for acute episodes, as in it's really bad. It's the first time coming in. Maybe they're kind of panicking, and you using this momentarily to help transition into long-term therapy. All right, and what's the answer, uh, not for the shelf exam, according to maybe Jake? Jake, you want to chime in on that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, benzos are a tricky one. They, they pose a lot of different risks. Um, they're very addictive. Um, you know, if you start benzodiazepines for a long enough time, it's pretty hard to come off them. And then there's another number of other uh, negative effects that the benzos have, whether it be short-term or long-term. Just here to review a couple studies, in 2004, 2018, 2019, and 2020, there's been four separate meta-analyses looking at the long-term cognitive effects of benzodiazepine. 
And it seems across the board, they decrease working memory, processing speeds, uh, expressive language, recent memory, and global cognition. So it looks like their long-term, there's some negative effects there. And then as well, you know, if you're, if you're co-taking those medications with alcohol or opiates, you do have the risk for overdose and, and seizures with withdrawal. So I just want to make sure I understand this. I'm a little bit of a caveman. Benzo's bad for mine. <laughs> exactly, yes. Because <laughs> benzos work in an interesting way. They work on the GABA-A receptor, and how they work is they, uh, they increase the frequency of opening, which allows more chloride to flow through the channel, and then chronically over time, it decreases the GABA-A receptor's response and expression. So then when all of a sudden you don't have your benzos anymore, um, it's a very excitatory response, which, you know, is most of the symptoms of withdrawal. Yeah, those benzodiazepine withdrawals and those alcohol withdrawals, uh, which also is a GABA receptor activity, pretty scary stuff. Um, Jake, so did you see anything about like car accidents, impaired driving, impaired machinery? Because we, we see those warnings, right? Anytime that somebody walks out the door with a benzodiazepine, if you're in a hospital that has warnings associated with the medications, they say something along the lines of, do not collect $200, do not pass go, <laughs> go directly to jail, have a car accident on the way home if you take one before you leave kind of stuff. Did you see anything along those lines? Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's definitely in the literature. And even beyond that, just simple walking. Um, there was a 2009 meta-analysis that if you were on benzodiazepines, that increased your falls, the odds ratio of 1.6. Uh, in 2014, there's another meta-analysis comparing 25 studies, and you had a relative risk of 1.25 of just becoming uh, having more fractures if you're taking benzos. So I think beyond driving and machinery, just walking in general, you're, you're more increased risk to fall um, and to break things. Okay, but Jake, I mean, you're painting a picture. I'm looking for the I'm looking for the light at the end of the tunnel. Let's say you stop benzodiazepines. It's all good, right? <laughs> uh, I wish. <laughs> and this is coming from a prior career as a drug and alcohol detox nurse. But the withdrawal is pretty dangerous, especially if you co-ingest them with alcohol. But first, you'll start out. Uh, with the withdrawal symptoms of anxiety, sleep disturbance, you'll then move into kind of tremors, diaphoresis, poor concentration, nausea and vomiting, palpitations, kind of feels like you got hit by a truck. Um, and then kind of the most dangerous part and what we really have to monitor in the healthcare setting is the seizures. Um, and these are monitored, uh, you know, inpatient withdrawals, uh, seizures could be definitely deadly in these situations. Quick aside here, my patients that have benzodiazepine and alcohol withdrawals, they always take off their clothes. Did you, you, you were a, an alcohol and drug nurse. Did you, did you see that trend? They came in and they said, well, I got caught because I tried to stop cold turkey and I was running around naked. Yeah, I think the tremors and the sweating uh, and just kind of the, you know, the restlessness they feel, it feels like everyone in withdrawal just tends to take off clothes, which is yeah, kind of a fun thing. All right, so I'm still looking for the silver lining here. Stop benzos safely and all is good, right? Uh, and then those studies I was referring to again, um, you know, the meta-analysis in 2018, 19, and 20 both show long-term 
disabilities, cognitive disabilities from benzodiazepines, um, that they're just across the board, global cognitive functions just decreased even after stopping and uh, abstaining from the benzodiazepines. So I can tell you that even though the board, the shelf answer is transitionary, I don't think we can, um, I mean, you and I have had fun obviously hamming that up a little bit, uh, but, but I just can't emphasize enough the risk of, of prolonged benzodiazepine. And it's really difficult. I, having sat in the room and having somebody say, dog, this is the only thing that helps me feel better. If you take these away, I can't function, I won't be able to keep my job, I won't be able to keep my relationship. And if you're listening, you're hearing me bang on the desk here and I try not to do that. Um, and, and it's hard to say, no, this is not a good idea. I'm hurting you by continuing this even though you're begging for it, right? That, that is a tough situation to be in. And it's one of the reasons why I, I really hate starting even transitionary uh, benzodiazepines. I think, I think most suicides happen with substances on board, and that includes benzodiazepines as well, and that's something I don't think you mentioned, Jake. These, these are tough medications to use, and again, shelf answer is short duration. Making that happen in real practice is harder than, than one might consider. Um, we have an OBGYN going to be expert working on it. How are benzos in pregnancy? To my knowledge, I think they're safe, um, but just come along with all the other risks we just mentioned. Um, there's not a lot of uh, medications you can give pregnant patients, so you have to be very careful. But to my knowledge, I think that they're considered at least safe in third trimester kind of stuff, or yeah. maybe even before. All right, we may have a. If you find something different, we'll post that into the podcast so that there's a, okay. a a paper there supporting one direction or the other. I did want to mention that benzos will always be the answer for one question. Anyone know where I'm going with that? Me. Talk around you. Catatonia, alcohol withdrawal. Yeah, alcohol withdrawal. Uh, yeah, the benzodiazepines are a must in alcohol withdrawal. There's not a, even though there's some other literature around that with the use of antiepileptics, the standard of care is benzodiazepines. Um, and, and catatonia is also an answer, right? ECT and catatonia are the two things. Or e, I'm sorry, benzos and ECT for catatonia. All right, so let's... Um, talk about the medications that, or the treatments, not necessarily just the medications, but let's talk about the treatments that um, seem to have a little less downside to them, a little less of the dark side. And should we start with, uh, what, what do you want to start with, Garrett? Um, probably the go-to that you'll probably see on your test question, which is SSRIs. I think it's a very good chance that you're going to have that as an option if your question's leading towards generalized anxiety disorder and what's your first line choice. In the real world, that can come with some side effects. Like it can be difficult for patients to want to use those. They come with some side effects, sexual side effects that are very unpleasant for people. So it can be hard to use those. So alternatives such as buspirone can be used. That's been shown to be effective. Uh, I believe mirtazapine uh, does not have the sexual side effects doesn't tend to, I don't recall if it has an FDA indication. I know, oh, that, we, I know that we looked at a meta-analysis, a network meta-analysis done by uh, Dr. Coverdell was one of the authors, one of my mentors, and it listed a number of medications that don't have FDA indications. 
and maybe we'll we'll get to those in just a moment. Okay. SSRIs, generally speaking, mm -hmm. you're going to see things like escitalopram, sertraline, paroxetine, fluoxetine in those kinds of questions for generalized anxiety disorder. Mm -hmm. You might also see SNRIs as well. Duloxetine may show up also. And then I think what you're referring to is if you have somebody who is saying up front, because of sexual mm -hmm. side effects, I can't take the SSRIs mm -hmm. and the SNRIs, now what do you do? And of course, uh, benzos will be offered and that is the wrong, wrong choice wrong choice for long-term management of generalized anxiety disorder. Good. Yeah, Dr. Ann, you brought up a good point. Um, you may know that SSRIs are the correct answer, but they will list them in their generic form with a bunch of other drugs. So you have to be able to pick out which drug name is in fact an SSRI, not an SNRI or something otherwise. Yeah. So study those SSRI names. Sure. Good point. Very, very good point. Um, what other uh, treatments yeah, are available? Outside of pharmacotherapy, there is good evidence for CBT, cog cognitive behavioral therapy, and exercise. I would feel like are some of the top options. So you have an article from the American Journal of Family Practice, yes. right? The AGFP. Mm -hmm. And that, that has... Uh, Believe it or not, that's a journal that I've looked at a number of times to make sure that I'm just doing the nuts and bolts right stuff. The, the one challenge with psychotherapies is finding somebody that will see patients and insurance coverage, right? Antidepressants are cheap and easy. They have a good uh, benefit. I think most people um, will, about 70, 65 to 75% of the people that take an SSRI will get um, pretty significant relief pretty quickly, mm -hmm. but it, it, it is at this cost of potential side effects, right? So, so having somebody you can refer to is very helpful. I think there is also some benefit with some of the mindfulness therapies, mm -hmm. uh, relaxation and so forth. Um, what else are we uh, missing on this topic? What have we not talked about that we should talk about? Because this is maybe one of the meatiest podcasts in terms of shelf kinds of principles that we've ever done. We mentioned buspirone. We did mention okay. buspirone. And Other that's, anxiety disorders? No, we kind of touched we on We kind that. of touched on those. The buspirone we would use in the case where sexual side effects limit the use of antidepressants. Um, I think then, Jake, you're going to say something? Yeah, I just had one more note and you guys will, you know, if you'll see this as you're rotating through your third and fourth years is when you get into family practice situations, and I think that's kind of the direction Garrett's heading, you only have a certain number of minutes with your patients. Typically, you know, it's seven to 10 minutes and a lot of times those patients would come in and state their, you know, things and it's so easy to continue their benzos, it's so easy to continue you know, or start benzos just, just to get them out of there. But I think talking about the other pharmacological options that Garrett and Dr. Roundy have been mentioning um, will be well worth your time. One of the other things that I think is pretty cool is it, it looks like there are medications out there that can be used to treat generalized anxiety that don't have an FDA indication. So even though we only have a couple of treatments in the pharmacological armamentarium, uh, a quick look will help you find a couple of other medications that seem to have reasonable literature and are reasonably safe to use uh, with a reasonable side effect profile. And again, psychotherapies, um, they're very, very helpful. The, the treatment of anxiety, uh, some articles make the case that the treatment is equivalent. Some articles make the case that uh, pharmacological treatments are slightly better, but come at a cost. In any case, 
uh, these seem to be two very equivalent options to offer patients, if not both. Mm -hmm. I think probably we're in a pretty good place to, to wrap this up. Why don't we uh, go ahead and get last thoughts? How about if we start with you, Cody? Any, any last thoughts or takeaways from your perspective? Um, just that generalized anxiety disorder, you need to keep it on your radar and that six months or more is an important thing to remember. It's a good point. We talk about timelines a lot here and uh, what is before six months? Anybody know, is there a diagnosis for less than six months or is it just if you finally make it six months, you get a diagnosis? Acute stress disorder. I think I, I thought acute stress was panic disorder. Was for PTSD for PTSD. For PTSD, acute stress is a PTSD precondition, right? Adjustment disorder. Maybe adjustment disorder. I think that's probably the best bet, Cody. Good call. Uh, let's see, Jake. Yeah, I think my takeaway here is just benzo's bad. <laughs> Use other medications if you can. <laughs> Yeah, I guess my thoughts on this are, as Cody was saying, keep it on your radar. It's no patient's going to come and saying, hey, doc, I, I have, like, name some might, but their doctor has to be like, I have generalized anxiety disorder. Here are my symptoms. Like, they'll come in saying, hey, my, I'm really achy. I'm really tired. It's like, I, my wife says I'm irritable. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> they might not say that. The wife might come in and be like, he's just being a jerk. But be, be ready to look for those Good, good point. Haley? Yeah, I would say that these questions can be very hard to sometimes determine which diagnosis is correct. So I would say unless you're absolutely positive, that unless there's something in the vignette that points you directly to a different diagnosis, just go with what's most common. So that would be either generalized anxiety disorder or major, major depression disorder. Yeah. So just go with those two when you're in doubt, unless there's something specific that points you to another one. And I think we did a good job of figuring out which what, what to look for to sort it out from those other ones. I, I really like the way that this played out. Rebecca. Um, something interesting that I saw while reading through the DSM-5, looking through um, generalized anxiety disorder, is that um, it says there's an increased likelihood of having a personality disturbance um, that meets criteria for what we talked about earlier, um, the OCPD. And so I think that'll help in practice if they do have generalized anxiety disorder to look out for um, other, um, I guess. Comorbid. Yeah. yeah, I think I think I read in, in one of the articles that we went through that this is one of the most comorbid conditions. It feels like the one thing that really separates it out from everything is that persistent, excessive worry and otherwise sometimes it can be really hard to sort out this condition from other conditions. Oh, that actually reminds me of a very important point because we've been talking about separating it from major depressive disorder but depression is often one of the most comorbid symptoms with anxiety. I think I saw somewhere around 40 percent of the time it's there with generalized anxiety mm -hmm. disorder and maybe uh, it, another 20 to 30 percent of the time it comes and goes something like that so so huge comorbidity yeah. yeah that's a good point and and it kind of makes you think about treatments for anxiety and depression that don't like they both work mm -hmm. to the same end rather than maybe would work against each other good anything else rebecca mm -hmm. all right chris um i don't really have any comments i just think this was educational to like kind of just knowing that this is a challenge and going forward, you can't just follow kind of the treatment algorithm. You need to take into more, take into um, use more judgment 
um, and your own kind of reasoning and stuff like that. So. Yeah, it gets really easy to get stuck and, and the treatment algorithms are always safer in terms of insurance, right? Liability, um, minimizing mistakes, and yet uh, individualized medicine is, is really a thing. So good point. All right, guys, on that note, thank you very much for spending some time with us, Garrett. Well done on developing the GAD topic and everybody else on uh, providing some additional information that I think really helped. I think this is a, a podcast that actually if somebody's interested in learning about GAD and maybe picking up somewhere between four to six questions on the shelf exam that revolve around anxiety, benzodiazepines, SSRIs, um, and uh, anxiety spectrum disorders. I think this is probably a really good start. So uh, thank you very much. And on that note, team out. Team out. Team out.